in the back of my mind all the time. It's like having parts of your heart outside of your body. Hey guys, welcome back to Floral Couch Conversations. I'm Emily. And I'm Alyssa. And I'm Bridget. <laughs> yes, we are joined by Bridget. Well, only our second guest of the year, which is kind of crazy to think about, but I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's only February, so. That's true. That's true. <laughs> We're doing okay. <laughs> I, I think today is actually March 1st, but I won't tell. Oh my gosh, you're right. <laughs> you are right. <laughs> it was even a leap year. We had an extra day of February. <laughs> it's okay. We'll just pretend we recorded yesterday. Okay. <laughs> Um, I actually, Bridget and I went to high school together. Um, you're a, you were a year older than me in school. And I was trying to remember too, did we play any sports together? I knew you were a cheerleader in high school, but for some reason I felt like we played some sort of sport together earlier on. Um, so I did basketball for my freshman and sophomore Oh, that's probably what it is. We were in basketball together. Yeah. Yeah. But after that, you know, I was not athletically inclined so I stuck more to the cheerleading and band <laughs> aspect. I mean, I didn't play basketball after junior year either, so. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, so that's how we know each other. And then um, you're still kind of living in our hometown. Yep, yep. And I did leave for a brief blink of time, but I'm back. Yeah, can you talk about that? Um, sure. So after school at BA, I graduated in 09, and then I went to Hamlin University in St. Paul. Um, I really liked it. It was totally different than the world that I had come from at BA because that was, you know, kind of very small and conservative and I don't want to say restricted, but it was it was definitely a safe little bubble. Yeah, it was a little and sheltered. Then it's so sheltered. Sheltered is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um, and then you know, going to college, I think for anybody is an experience. But then to go to a liberal college where I was just like, I felt like everyone was so accepted and anything was okay, and it was just kind of mind blowing um, to be in a different world. And it was scary, but it was exciting, and I really liked Hamlin. Um, In the grand scheme of things, I wish I wouldn't have graduated early because I think it would have been more fun to have more time in college. Um, I did summer school in J terms, so I graduated in three years. Um, Yeah, I got an anthropology and um, sociology degree and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I guess that's kind of where Matt comes in, I guess. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because... Well, we started dating after my junior year of high school, and then, um, you know, we got engaged. At, I, w- I was engaged November of my freshman year of college. So That's crazy to think yeah, about. Yeah, it was really crazy. November of 2009, yeah. Um, November 14th, I think. Yeah, and then, um, so we were engaged pretty much the next two years and we got married the spring of my junior year of college yeah and and then uh, I was always told I couldn't have kids because I have PCOS and that it would be really hard to get pregnant and um well you know how life is it just kind of throws things at you and so I got really really sick 
we got married in June. I got really, really sick in August and had to have um, emergency surgery. They're like, oh, you're, you have ovarian torsion. And that's when you have like a cyst on your ovary and it flips your ovary and it fills with blood and basically your ovary is dead. Oh my gosh. Um, so they had to remove it and they're like, FYI, we're removing your ovary, but you are pregnant. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so yeah, it was crazy and and they're like oh but you're pregnant but the baby probably won't survive this anesthesia for the surgery and I was like wait okay so I'm super excited about this and it was just you know emotion overflow yeah but then I was like oh my gosh you know we need to have this surgery because otherwise I'm gonna die and (laughs) and yeah her name's Bryn she's gonna be eight next month so she I don't know. She's the baby that was meant to be. Yeah. So they said she wouldn't survive, but she did. Right. Because I I was technically only like six weeks pregnant. And so um, a fetus that's small, an embryo, I guess, or whatever, um, wouldn't survive anesthesia at that point. Right. Wow. So she was a miracle baby. Yeah. In like more more than one way. Not thinking I could ever get pregnant and then being like okay well I am oh my gosh that's so amazing but now I'm not going to be and then and then I was again and <laughs> what a roller coaster it was, just, it was it totally was a roller coaster yep oh my gosh um and you have two daughters so yeah only so my second daughter Marin Marin the name Marin actually means wished for Aww. um so Bryn was almost two or yeah no, she was two. She was almost three when Marin was born. Um, and I had to do all these nasty fertility drugs. And it took a long time to get pregnant. And um, it's it's it wasn't fun. It was, again, another emotional roller coaster. And I'm not a good pregnant person. I was always, like, falling and losing my balance. <laughs> <laughs> so with both girls, I was induced early. And... Um, my doctor's like, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend it. We, you could have another kid. We could try it again, but I wouldn't recommend it. And I was like, okay, it's a sign. Yeah. I'm, I'm not supposed to have any more children. <laughs> um, and so we just have the two girls. They're now five and almost eight. And they're both little miracles. They they are. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, neither of them were supposed to happen. And then we just got lucky I guess I think that's such like a hopeful story because there's a lot of like fertility issues and I feel like people aren't usually open to talking about them um and I totally am open to talking about it but it was such a dark time that it's like I I think I mentally blocked out some of it like I try not to remember it because you feel like such a failure like every every month you get your period you're like I failed again like for some reason as a woman you think it's like you're job I I don't know it it was a very taxing time like emotionally and psychologically I could see that yeah so how old were you when you had so (laughs) I was a senior in college when I had Bryn so you know those little desks that have like the thing that flaps in front of you and you put your notebook on it and like you lift it up and swing it over and then yeah, those don't work when you're nine months pregnant. <laughs> they, like, fit over the top of your belly. So if you can, like, imagine that visual, that was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I had Bryn April 23rd. I took – I had her on a Monday. I took 
Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday off. Went back the next Monday. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was finals week. I had to go back. So What was that like to be pregnant in college and, like, with your friends and weird or did Um, did you feel supported? I really only had, like, I would say, like, two or three close friends and the people in my class at that time were really supportive. Um, you know, it's college, you kind of lose touch with the people that you're not in classes with anymore. Um, and so the people that were in my classes with me were super supportive and, you know, wanted to see pictures and thought it was awesome. But at the same time, they, they couldn't relate, you know, they were in a different world Mm -hmm. and I didn't blame them for that, but it was just kind of isolating. For sure. Where were you guys living then? Because you were still in college and married. Were you guys just living around Hamlin somewhere? Yeah. So we were basically in the ghetto. Um, (laughs) So we, so we, gosh, another weird story. So we um, lived in Highland Park, which is like five minute drive. It's by St. Kate's um, to Hamlin. And I loved living there. And then I got this crazy idea that I should get a dog and my apartment didn't allow dogs and he's a little dog and so I snuck him in and out in like a duffel bag (laughs) every single day multiple times a day for probably about six months and then our lease was up and my husband's like you know he's kind of messed up in the head that he thinks he should live in a duffel bag we need to move so (laughs) um so we moved um so we lived on University and God, I can't remember the cross crossroad. Um, I'm told it's totally escaping me. Matt, Matt would know, but like the Frogtown um, area. Yep, yep. So we lived in the ghetto, and we were totally fine with it. Like it was just like we were two adults. It was fine. And at that point, because Matt's four years older than me, he was teaching and, um. It, it wasn't a problem but then when we got pregnant I was like all right I can smell the pot coming from my neighbor's doorway like I we can't be pregnant here with this so um we broke our lease and we moved back home and I was like I know I can't go back to living with my parents as a married person like that it would just be so hard um especially with my three siblings still being at home yeah it would just change the dynamics of, you know, you're not an adult and living with your spouse anymore. You're reverting back to being a kid. So um, my grandma has an apartment in her basement because she's really big into AA and, you know, anybody who would need help, she would let live there. Um, so we moved into my grandma's basement and had an apartment there and we lived there. Um, I want to say Bryn was four months old when we finally found a house that we loved. Because we moved back in, I want to say, October. And there are no houses for sale in the winter. So we just kept our eyes open, saved some money, and then moved in the spring once um, Bryn was born. So that was, I mean, that was a good, smart move on our part to not rush into something just to have a house. Right. Very cool. And my grandma was super helpful and supportive. And it was nice, you know, bringing a newborn home with Matt working such long hours, I would be like, can you just watch her so I can go shower? <laughs> or, you know, just having an extra set of hands, it was so helpful. Yeah. Being close to my family and my doctor, and that just made a world of difference. 
Very but cool. yeah, so I think you asked me what I did after college. <laughs> yeah, so how did you get to your current job? Um, so after graduating with an anthropology and sociology degree, there's basically nothing you can do except to go to grad school. And I wasn't ready for that because I was like, I just want to enjoy being a mom and having a job that I don't have to take home. And I just want a regular job. So I actually got a job at Shattuck in Fairbolt and I loved it. I worked there as an admin assistant. So I worked in the middle school um, and I was the um, the principal's assistant. And so I did a lot of the scheduling at, for like class schedules and um, I was the front desk lady and I, I really got to know a lot of the kids and um, I saw that there was such a huge need for, you know, the kids would just come in and start telling you things. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like you, you need to talk to a counselor. Like, and I found out I was really good at it. Um, and that the kids, I don't know, found me approachable and just kind of came in and spilled their guts all the time. So I was like, I could, I could see myself doing this as a job. So I was working at Shattuck and, um, so I guess I started that job in August and then I started my master's degree in October of that year. So I really didn't even take any time off from, cause I graduated in May, but I guess I just found my direction, I guess. So I did two years of grad school while I worked at Shattuck. Um, so working full time and having like a six month old and going to grad st- school full time. I don't recommend that either. It sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It. I don't know. Maybe I just like thrive under high stress or I don't know. <laughs> but so I did that. And then when I was in my clinicals um, for, you know, kind of doing my internship and logging my hours because you do two years of school and then you do a full another year of like clinicals and internship and following um counselors at every level so I had to log hours I want to say it's like I'm totally blanking on the number but I think it was 500 hours at each developmental level so at elementary at middle school and then high school because your license encompasses k-12 so you have to be kind of mentally prepared for for anything and it's nice because you get to experience all the different age groups and say like well I really enjoyed working with you know, middle school, but high school wasn't that great. It wasn't that much fun. Right. It's nice to have that Um, exposure. Exactly. Before being tied into a job, Mm -hmm. you kind of get to experience, experience it all. Um, So that was great. So what is the hardest part about being a guidance counselor? Oh my gosh. That's such an easy question. The parents. Oh, really? Yeah. The kids are great yeah, you get tough kids. Yeah, you get kids that don't want to talk to you and you just listen um, or they just listen. But it's 100% the parents because you never, it's really hard to tell someone that they are the problem. They are the causing either the turmoil or the stress or the way they're parenting is really damaging or hurting their kids. Um, Or to, you know, if they don't, do things or aren't accepting of the way that or the things that you think need to be done you know here's an example um a student was I'm just vaguely Mm -hmm. if a student was suicidal or had suicidal ideations um you know 
the only thing we can really do is work with the parents to get them the help that they need. But if a parent is in denial or doesn't see it as a problem or feels like a student's just crying out for attention um, and you know it's something more, they can totally choose to ignore it. It's their child. Um, They're a minor. So even if the child asks you for help and says, I want to go and, you know, do some sort of program or something, you you can't. You're stuck. You're at the mercy of the parent. Um, and there's a lot of situations where this child is struggling because a parent isn't stable and has mental health concerns or um, addictions or is struggling on their own. And so the, the only thing you can do is be there for the student and listen and try to help them the best that they can. Or, you know, if there's an LGBT student, both schools that I work with are private Catholic schools. And so it's really hard to be there and be listening and knowing that their parents disapprove of who they are as a person and that they go home to feeling crushed. But you can't tell the parents that they're wrong. You can't tell them that they're right. You just have to be there. And it's really kind of a helpless feeling. My mom is an elementary school teacher. She is a math specialist and she specializes. So she helps the kids that struggle in math. And she would totally agree with you that the parents are the hardest part. And it it is that helpless feeling where you can't do anything because the parents won't sign off on it because Mm -hmm. they don't want to admit that their kid has a problem or they're struggling or that they have a problem. So, yeah. Well, and in my position, it's not necessarily like, you know, obviously with your mom, it would be like, okay, they're, they're struggling with math skills, Mm -hmm. but that's not really an elective. Mine is. And so the parents, I've had parents say, we don't, we don't want my child to see you anymore might be because they're embarrassed. It might be because they're afraid of what the child might tell you. And, you know, I might report it to CPS and they'll get in trouble. It might be because they don't believe in mental health care, which is, you know, so sad. But it's it's true and they can feel that way. And, you know, you're just stuck then. There's not much more you can do. That I never even thought about the parents in a guidance counselor situation and how tied your hands are. That would be Mm -hmm. extremely difficult. It almost feels like, too, like if you have to sit down with the parents to talk about these different things, like you're almost like a therapist for them in a way, too, like trying to get them to understand. 100%. Yep. So a lot of the things that I do are, you know, kind of making I don't making but helping parents understand you know what their child's feeling or what they're going through and you know immediately parents become defensive and you know are like oh well you're just trying to tell me I'm a bad parent or like what am I doing wrong and you know if your child is depressed you could be doing 100% everything right but it's a biological thing you're not doing anything wrong they're just you know not not themselves and then they need help for that and you know there's so many different types of parenting styles out there whether they believe only in western medicine or whether they only believe in holistic or you know I personally believe a combination of both is the best approach Mm -hmm. but you never know what you're gonna get or what background the parents come from so 
just kind of have to walk on eggshells until you get to know them a little bit more and hopefully build a rapport with them as well. Yeah. Did your grad school program include any family counseling training? Um, it doesn't, no, because that's not my area of expertise. Right. Mine is only ch- like child development. Um, that's a separate license. But they do have, we had quite a few classes on how to work collaboratively with teachers, with um, parents, because there's teachers who aren't receptive Mm -hmm. of mental health help as well. You know, whether or not they're old school or just are, you know, teachers that aren't aware of all the things that are going on or don't see red flags quite yet. Um, So there's, I mean, it's, there's so many different things that could be happening and, you know, a lot of a lot of things that parents do, they, they don't think affect their kids, but it does 100%. Right. For Just for background, I'm currently in a grad school program for family and marriage counseling. So oh, awesome. I was just curious. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's so cool. Who are you going through? I'm doing it through Capella University. No way. That's yeah. what I went through too. Oh my gosh. Yes, that's what I did. I, I really like it, actually. It's yeah, easy and streamlined. Yeah, for sure. So do you, have you done your first, like, clinicals? or I haven't. I actually, like, just started, so I'm in my second okay. quarter of classes. Oh, okay. It'll be fun once you start traveling because what they do is, um, you know, you do a year of school and then you meet for your clinicals. Mm-hmm. And um, I think one of mine was in Scottsdale, Arizona. Ooh. And you just go and you do hardcore, like, role-playing for a week of you know just imaginable situations and it really you know it's very uncomfortable (laughs) because you get to put yourself in a whole different role and these are strangers that you've you know only talked to online Mm -hmm. and essentially they're strangers but you feel like you know them and so yeah I think I did that three times yeah it was in where did we go? Oh, Texas. Texas in the summer stinks. It's so hot. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to Orlando, Florida in November. That's where my first one is. Oh, that'll be perfect. So, yeah, I'm excited and also Lucky. nervous, but it'll be good. You'll love it. You'll love it. It's nerve-wracking, but fun. Yes, I'm, like, enjoying it so much so far. I know I've made the right decision, so. Yeah, what was your undergraduate in? Communication and journalism. So I've been working... Okay. Um, kind of in like marketing communication settings as a writer and I'm like ready to do something different yeah yep that's awesome semi-similar life paths yeah for (laughs) sure so um Bridget you're kind of in a service field and at what point did your um because your husband is now a police officer right Yes, so he's a deputy with um, the sheriff's office locally, and we, so going into all of this, you know, when we were dating and getting married, um, he was a teacher, and I, you know, saw my life as, I'm always going to be married to a teacher, we're in similar fields, I'm a school counselor, like, we both have the same hours, we had similar days off, we had, you know, it was just really convenient right and uh, um his dad was um he was with the state patrol for many many years and he was the captain of state patrol and um 
you know, really kind of suffered with some PTSD when he took early retirement. And so that kind of impacted Matt's life path as well. And so, you know, Matt, Matt had two interests and said, you know, I'm really interested in education and teaching, but I'm also really interested in law enforcement and becoming a peace officer. Um, so he talked to his dad, you know, his dad is like his person. And so his dad's like, don't do it, don't do it. And he was in kind of a dark place then and not, you know, at peace with his career. And, you know, there wasn't, this was, you know, 10 years ago. Um, actually, it's more than 10 years ago. But so he kind of talked him out of going into law enforcement because he said, you know, there's there's not enough mental health support. There's not enough support in general. And it's a hard job. And do teaching. And so Matt listened to him, and but always felt this tug towards law enforcement and helping people that way. Um, so he taught for nearly 10 years. Um, he did middle school and then finally settled in high school um, and loved it, but he was burnt out. You know, I don't think he could continue teaching. And so he's he'd always tossed around the idea of going back to school. So his long, long, long-term goal, like, hopefully if we're blessed enough to become super old together is to teach law enforcement. Okay. Um, so he's like, you know, I, I would combine both my passions. So, you know, helping people that way. And I always tell him that, you know, that's it. You only get one midlife crisis and he took his early. So <laughs> that's, you know, we, it was crazy. He, he already had his, you know, bachelor's degree, but he had to get like, a certification since he already had his four-year degree and that was about a year of online school and then a year because he did it through Rasmussen and loved that program Um, because what he was teaching at the same time obviously we couldn't afford for him to quit teaching Um, and so the second year he did like the hands-on I don't want to say internship but like more of the actual training for law enforcement Mm -hmm. um the second year and so he would go up to the cities every night after school and he'd be studying until 2 a.m and still going back to teach the next day and then um he graduated in march of the second year and then he was immediately offered a job with both both the county and with the city so um they kind of kind of argued over him and which one wanted to hire him because he had been working as water patrol for the county for four years already um and that's how he knew like I'm so much happier in the summer I want to work with the county full time and and so um he actually did both jobs full time for about two months because you never knew when an opportunity to get employed through your home county is gonna come around again you know, right. there's only so many officers and you don't know when somebody's going to move or relocate, take a different job. Um, so he's like, I've got to jump on it now. So he took off either Friday or Monday and had three day weekends and he would work nights like nights, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, um, and then kind of Sunday he would flip back. And so he would either take a Monday or a Friday off and teach four days a week. And then um, 
he was so, so lucky. And we're so blessed to have the principal at the high school work with him and, you know, have no hard feelings and say, you know, I've got your back. If this is what you truly need to make you happy and want to transition out of this career, we'll make it work for you. Like we'll work, um, you know, Matt had never missed any work. And so he said, we'll make this transition as smooth as we can for you. And um, he was wonderful. I, I we, we lucked out. Very cool. So we didn't I see think... each other for two months, but. <laughs> you all, <won't... laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I guess, is it hard being married to a police officer? Like, are you ever, do you ever worry when he goes off to work? I always or... worry. Um, you know, that, that nagging in the back of your head doesn't ever go away. And, you know, it's hard because it's really isolating because. The career isn't like any other career. You can be intrinsically proud, internally proud of your spouse. You can be proud of your career, but they're not like firefighters. Not everybody loves law enforcement. And so Mm -hmm. it's kind of, you're, you're guarded about it. I actually even debated telling you I didn't want to talk about it because, you know, you have to protect your family. And if people know that about you, not everyone loves officers and, Not everyone thinks they're fair or that they do a good job or, you know, it's a really hard job and it's really isolating because um, you, you have to do a lot of things alone. You have to be a really independent person and have to be okay with, okay, um, you know, you've got seven days on, I'm going to be in charge and you can join our family when you get, you know, when you get enough sleep and, see you a little bit after school before you go back to work at night. And, you know, you you can't be very codependent. You have to be very independent. And I I was very codependent when he started. You know, I was like, how am I going to do this? And, you know, you have to realize that they're not going to be at holidays and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be at birthdays. So you celebrate at different times and you have to sacrifice a lot. People don't understand Mm -hmm. how much it impacts the family as well. And how much of it they bring home with them. Because it's it's not like they just go to a crash and then that's it. That's the last time they think about it, you know. Um, right. And so they bring that home with them. And you try and process. But you also try and, you know, keep boundaries. Because I don't want to know these things about people. But, you know, you have to let them vent. And be there for them as well. And the schedule's crap. And you just have to kind of... <laughs> just have to kind of roll with it the thing that's helped me the most is finding other officers partners and wives that are in the same situation and kind of bonding with them I have one really good friend who's been a saving grace you know just kind of she understands the life we lead she understands you know us having to drop things at a moment's notice with Matt still being drop car we only get two weeks notice of what his schedule is going to be like we can't really make plans for vacations we can't you know if he's working that night you never know if he's gonna get called in early um actually just like two weeks ago he was supposed to go in at seven and he got called in at five and they're like hey something's going on and we need you to come in right now and I was at my parents and he had our daughters and so he calls me and he's like I've gotta go and I was like the girls (laughs) 
And uh, <laughs> he's like, I'll, I'll drop him off at somewhere. I'll drop him off at grandma's. So he dropped him off at grandma's and just, you know, at a moment's notice had to go. And I went and picked up the girls from my grandma's because it was just kind of whoever was close enough to, you know, he could have left them at our neighbors, but because um, they're really sweet, too. But I, I pull in and they're standing there with their arms crossed. Dad left us in the driveway and didn't even walk us in. Oh. <laughs> I was like, yeah, he had to go, you know, and that's just kind of symbolic of what our life is like. You know, we're I don't want to say we're second to his job, but it's it's definitely a 50 50. It's a huge part of who they are. That was really hard for right. me. I can, like, I don't think a lot of people always, if they don't know a police officer, uh, personally, don't always realize, like, the sacrifice that it takes for the family. It's a huge sacrifice, and it's not, I mean, people are like, they get paid well, right? And I'm like, I mean, it's okay, but it's, like, the same as every other job, and do you want to risk your life every time you go to your job and still get paid the same? Like, a lot of people would say it's not worth it, and the stress, and, you know, it's... And the climate, uh, yeah, there's a lot of things working against him. So I think it's kind of, it's admirable that he still is going in every day. You don't want to flaunt it. It's it's kind of like a, you know, the funny thing is I'm married to one and my sister Linnea is married to an officer and there's three sisters and our third sister just started dating an officer who's in oh school God. and we're like, what is wrong with us? Like, <laughs> we cannot do this. We can't have another schedule because like right now both our husbands are on nights, but they're on, you know, different counties and different schedules. And so the likelihood of all of us being together as a family is pretty much slim to none unless we plan ahead and someone takes off. So it's. It's crazy. I, I was like, what are you doing? Stop dating him. And she's like, I don't have to listen to you. I was like, you don't know what you're I feel like that's, that's just got to be a testament to the strong, independent women in your family that you don't need to be codependent. You know, and... I, I like to take it as a compliment, but I think we're just dumb. <laughs> More often than not, we're like, ah, okay, well, we got this. So... Yeah, we have all of that going on. And then um, we like a year ago, actually, so we were licensed a, a, year, a year and a month ago, we were licensed to do foster care. And so that actually kind of came into play with um, both of our jobs. Matt sees a huge need for it, you know, children that are in bad positions. And he's like, you know, you just want to take them home and give them a hug and I'm the same way. I see students that of mine that are in foster care and you try and help them the best you can. And we both just saw such a need for it in our county. And so um, we got licensed after a year and of going through all the paperwork. And it's such a long process of, you know, jumping through hoops. And it's very invasive. You know, they need copies of your last physical. They need copies of all of your bank statements. They need copies of everything your your dog's vaccinations like you know and and I'm thankful for that because that means that kids don't end up in in unsafe homes but it's a lot to get licensed um and so we've did you always know that you wanted to be foster parents or was it truly just um your careers and having that inside look of the need we we always wanted 
I, I think it was always in the back of our mind because when we first started dating, you know, one of the things we talked about was like, I have PCOS. I don't know if I'll be able to have kids. He's like, that's fine. We'll mm-hmm. adopt. I was like, okay, all right, we're rolling with it. And then we were blessed with these two girls. And um, then we were like, well, there's so much more that we could do. You know, I'm not going to have any more kids and um, we can handle more than two some days. Um <laughs> And then, uh, you know, it just kind of was like, gosh, it kept slapping us in the face. Like, ah, it's right here. You can do this. And um, I think we always knew we wanted to. We just didn't know we wanted to right now because our girls are Mm -hmm. still very much growing up. And there's so much we haven't experienced as parents. Um, You know, they're five and seven. So we haven't done teenage years. We haven't done, I mean, so much. There's so many things, so many firsts we still have. And yeah, we've got, you know, nearly eight years under our belt as parents, but we were so unprepared. You, you have no idea. We were so unprepared. We we're like, we got this. Matt was a teacher for 10 years. I'm a counselor. Like we could, anything that comes our way. And we we're like, whoa, we have no idea what we're doing. Like <laughs> you just, you never know. And each, each situation is so different. And, um, you know, you don't know how you're going to react and you don't know until you're in the moment. And then you just, you do the best you can. And you just, there's a lot of just being there for the kids again, listening. And yeah. Yeah. So you got licensed after the very long grueling process. Yep. And then um, what happened? Well, we actually went on a family cruise last year and our license was not not approved yet. We had turned in everything. We were like, okay, we're done with that. We're going to go enjoy ourselves. Like we went on, I think there was 22 of us family members that went on a cruise together and just had a great time. And um, we toured the South Caribbean and super fun. And we came back and there was a voicemail on my phone that there was um, a respite placement for waiting for us. And so I was like, what already? Like, okay, so the email just came in that we're approved and our license is official, but already they're like, okay, we're hitting the ground running. Um, and so there's there's a couple different, people often don't know that there's a couple different types of placements and couple, um, different ways that kids come into your home. So there's like an emergency placement that is a 72-hour hold so while they investigate and see if, it, if the child needs to be in a home or removed from their parents for a long period of time, they just either a law enforcement hold or social services hold, um, they are an emergency placement. A lot of times just they come for three days and maybe their parents are cleared. Maybe they go to a different home that is a better fit for them, but you just kind of are like the in-between. Um, and okay. so that that's one of the ways. And another way is a, another type, I guess I should say, is a respite placement. And so a respite placement means the children already have a foster home and a foster family. And um, either the family is taking a break and, you know, have a family wedding and they just, you know, didn't have a ticket for them or they had something else going on Um, each family each foster family gets 14 days of respite allotted to them per year to see however I mean maybe it's just been a really really long month and you need 
a weekend to reconnect with your spouse and um, your bio children, or maybe you're going out of town and you can't take the kids with you. And like for one of them, it's like our kids went to grandma's house, but her house isn't licensed. And so um, our boys went to a fo- like a respite home, a different foster home for the weekend. Um, and so that's called respite care. And then there's long-term placements. So there's really three. There's emergency holds, respite, and then a long-term placement. Um, and so we've done two different respites and we've done um, one long-term placement. And um, so last April we were placed with three boys. Yeah, in an 11-month-old and a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And they were boys, and we were like, we don't know how to do boys. We've got two girls. Like, (laughs) what is happening? And they – boys are totally different. I mean, obviously, you know that. But, like, as children, having (laughs) parented two girls, like, they're interested in art projects. And not that the boys aren't, but, like, they more prefer to run and jump and jump off the top of the couch and um you know tip over things and they're just different than girls and I think any parent will will tell you that like I I think that was another part that was so eye-opening like parenting boys versus parenting girls and um so we had initially asked for a placement of at most two but they brought us three and we had asked for girls cause we know how to do girls and they brought us three boys <laughs> and we were like, Oh God. Okay. Well, <laughs> this is what we're going to do. So um, since we, we don't even have a car that fits five car seats and they're all still in car seats. So we actually had, and this was very hard, but the 11 month old wasn't as bonded to the other two. Um, the two and four year old and the two and four year old were very, very close. And with the two year old having um, such a speech impediment, he relied on the four year old to kind of interpret for him a lot. So those two, we knew how to stay together. So they stayed with us and um, a friend who, who was also a foster mom took in the eight month old and he was the only child in the home there. And so he got so much more one-to-one-on-one and so much more attention and it worked out in the end to be the best situation. Um, and there's, yeah. again, it's just roller coasters up and down of how the parents are doing, the bio parents. And um, it's really hard to manage visits. A lot of people don't know that. Um, so our court agreement was that the boys would still see their bio parents three times a week. Um, and so they would go there for sometimes an hour, sometimes it was increased to like five hours, anything. And you had to make your family schedule work around that. Um, and they would come home devastated. They would, you know, you'd work and work and work all weekend on just basic social skills, like no hitting, no biting, no running in the house, you know, um, basic rules. And then they'd go back home where there was very little structure and they'd come back totally, you know, like at step one again. And so it was like restarting back at square one, three times a week. And that's exhausting. Um, It's co-parenting with a stranger essentially, because we had no contact with bio mom 
at the end, I started sending a notebook back and forth saying, this is when they ate. This is what they, you know, what they had. This is how they slept last night. This is the last time one of them had had Tylenol. Just basic communication because sometimes you couldn't rely on the caseworkers who transport them to pass that information along. And so that was something that we learned along the way. Yeah. So this, the three boys were your long-term mm-hmm. foster. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, was it, how long did you have that? So they moved in April 11th and they moved out October 17th. So it was about six months and a week. Okay. Was it hard to kind of say goodbye? So hard. Because there are times when you've got them where you imagine this being your family, your forever family. And you know, you don't treat them any different than your own kids and they truly become part of your family and the dynamics of your family change. And, um, you know, Marin was no longer the baby of the family. And so she grew up and seeing her change and evolve and develop and become more independent because she wasn't the baby anymore. Um, was amazing to see her change. And I'm not saying it's all positive, but it wasn't saying it's all negative but it's not all positive I mean there's there was goods and bads you know because they they pick up some of the bad habits from the kids and I mean I'm sure their kids picked up bad habits from ours too and um you know it's just it's it's crazy it was so hard to say goodbye I think we Matt brought them to their parents home and the girls and I just sat on the couch and we cried and Matt came home and he cried with us and we each cried for I want to say we just sat on the couch and cried for about two hours, how much we were going to miss them, how much fun we had with them. Um, You know, some of the worries, the anxiety that the girls had, like, who's going to take care of them? Who's going to sing them to sleep? What if they get, what if their parents don't feed them again? Or, you know, all of those things, the same worries I had. So it was really hard to reassure them. Um, And so it was just heart wrenching. And, you know, after we just kind of dumped it all out, we were like, all right, well, you know, the only thing to do is move forward. So it was painful, and I don't think I went into the boys' room for probably about a month. And even then, I had the girls go to my mom's for a weekend, and I just I just packed their things, and I cried. And I sorted things in Rubbermaids and cried. And, you know, even now, I moved the couch to you know, vacuum underneath the couch and the Hot Wheels cars come out and, you know, that I'm crying and vacuuming. And it's been, you know, it's been a long time still since October and those feelings ever don't ever go away. And they're always going to have a huge chunk of my heart. And I wish I could see them and I wish I could give them a hug. And, you know, there's, there's so much, they're in the back of my mind all the time. It's like having parts of your heart outside of your body. And it's really hard to explain, but we haven't had another long-term placement since then because I wasn't emotionally ready and mm-hmm. it's exhausting. And I, I didn't want to put that on the girls. They needed some one-on-one and um, our oldest struggles with some ADHD. And so we needed to work with her and, you know, get some meds adjusted and kind of just work on ourselves for a while, each of us actually, um, and, and readjust because now Marin's the baby again and... Bryn's always been the oldest mother hen. She's always had that role. Mm. But, you know, it's 
it's really hard. It's like losing a limb and not being able to check on it. Or, you know, it's like going through a bad breakup, honestly. You know, you feel like, well, I can't have contact with them. And we offered the mom our phone numbers and said, you know, please call us. Anything you need, if you want us to just watch them for a week or anything. Um, but she hasn't reached out. And, and that's her prerogative. We can't force her to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess I would feel threatened by me if I was in her shoes. So I try to be understanding. But it still sucks. Totally sucks. Right. So, yeah. And you don't know how you're going to react until you actually go through it. Right. I guess I'm just processing because, like, I don't – I think it's amazing um, what your family did to help these kids and that you were open to the process and just, like, how eloquently you can talk about the experience. I don't think I would have been as eloquent if you talked to me about it sooner. If you had tried to talk to me about it in maybe even November, I would have been a blubbering mess. You know, I – I was very angry, very angry about what they were going back to because not much had changed about the situation. Um, Mm -hmm. The parents in this situation were just meeting the bare minimums of, well, they're not not doing it, but they're not doing as much as we'd like them to be doing. They don't parent in the style that I would, but it's not illegal. It's almost parallel to how you're talking about your school counselor job and how your hands are tied. You can't do anything. But I think in this case, you can give yourself a break and give your kids a break and let them decompress and really reflect and like adjust. And that's that's really, that's really smart. And because um, for the most part, you know, when I was still working during the summer, it wasn't as bad, but when I was still working, I would have this turmoil and chaos and crisis at school, and then I would come home to the same thing. And so I was kind of burning my candle at both ends, and I just I, – I got burnt out, and, you know, it was really hard. It was easier once it was summer, and I didn't have to deal with all the heartbreak at school as well. Um, but it was really hard to not have home be my safe space and place I could decompress from all the chaos of my day. Um, and it, it, it was hard having Matt in the same County as well. And, you know, knowing things about things that are going on with the law and, you know, um, you know, maybe seeing a warrant or two for a parent and we're like, Oh my God, our worlds are so connected and going to collide. And it was, it was messy. It was, there's no other word for it. It was just messy and stressful. So but I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade all the hugs I got. I wouldn't trade all the fun memories. They got to dye Easter eggs for the first time. They got to go camping for the first time. They got to go swimming in the lake for the first time. They got to go um, like skiing and tubing behind the boat. They got to drive a boat. They had summer to die for. Summer that kids... Kids' memories are, they're going to have those forever. And, and they're, no matter how bad it gets at home, they're still going to have those memories. And, you know, I, I hope they keep those in their heart. And we gave them an amazing summer and fall and sons <laughs> into um, kindergarten. 
and had him, you know, registered. And I don't think parents would have been able to um, coordinate all of the paperwork um, that needed to be done to register him for school and getting him kind of a, a stable start to the school year. And, um, you know, knowing what the teacher's expectations are. Since they did leave in October, he had, you know, two full months of this is what a school routine is like. And I just have to take, you know, some kind of piece to that, hoping that it was enough of a building block for him to build off of. Yeah. What, what advice would you give to some, like, parents that are considering fostering and, like, haven't started the process but are considering? Um, so much of it is just learning to be patient. Do not do this if you're an impatient person because so much is just you're waiting on the county, you're waiting on bio parents, you're waiting on paperwork, you're waiting in lines. Like the wait list to get the boys into therapy was forever. It was months long to get them into therapy. And it's like, this is what they need right now, right now, not two right. months from now. Um, and it was frustrating and it was maddening. Um, so don't do this if you're impatient. I started out really impatient because, you know, I was used to advocating for my own kids um, there's so much to learn. I didn't know anything about MA and the way that works. Um, so the boys had state insurance and so learning about that and, you know, navigating doctor's appointments with that and dentist appointments and the oldest boy had surgery cause he had came to us with 13 cavities and needed eight crowns. And so I was with him through dental surgery and, um, yeah, it was, it was an experience. It is not for the faint of heart. Do you think the wait list to get in therapy is partially due to your location? Or what, or what do you think makes it such a long wait list? I see it with my students as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, parents ask for recommendations and I give them recommendations of local places and they're like oh they're a month out so frustrating I was like wow only a month you know um I think it's just the reality of the world today mental health services are in in high demand Mm -hmm. and there just isn't enough people who who work in the profession who um you know and there's not a lot of places around that offer services um I kind of butt heads with our social worker because she wanted to go through just one place and they were the two month out. And I found one place that could get him in next week. And she's like, no, this is who the county goes through. And I was like, but he needs his help now. Why can't we go here? And, you know, that was that part was navigating the MA and insurance. And um, so I think that played a part of it. Yeah, because like insurance coverage, you could maybe get in sooner, but you'd have to pay like. Like, the cost of mental health services is outrageous, right. too, in a lot of the cases. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah, I know. It's not exactly that's... a lighthearted topic. <laughs> no, but I think it's just so interesting to hear, and I so appreciate you sharing your story, just because, I mean, I don't think it's this perspective I've ever heard, and I don't know. I just think it's very enlightening and it's amazing what you guys did 
or are doing. I, I mean, I if it was up to Matt, he's like, I'm out. <laughs> so it's taken me <laughs> a couple months to convince him to be back to the place where, like, okay, yep, we could probably provide respite care again and just do, you know, the weekend shots and work up to a placement. Um, but it's hard because your family is tied down then, you know. Um, we mm-hmm. like to go to the cabin. And with my schedule in the summer, having summers off, we go to my parents' cabin and Matt stays home and works. And we couldn't do that because the boys had to have three visits a week. And so that was that was hard adjusting to that as well. And um, it, it does tie you down a lot the schedules and demands for, you know, appointments, adding two more therapy appointments a week, adding, you know, we had an ECF teacher, ECFE teacher in the house once a week checking in and um, just finding all those supports for the kids. It's great once you have them, but then it it gets to be a lot, a lot of appointments. Again, thank you for sharing your story. Um, Before we end, the one question we ask all of our guests, is if you had a reality show about your life, what would it be called and why? Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) I think about, like, some of the shows that, like, I relate to. Um, Have you ever heard of the show called The Fosters? Yes. I love that show. I love it. I love it so much. Um, And my life is pretty much like that. Um, Yeah. But it's sometimes it's not. Gosh, I don't know. I also really relate to like This Is Us. Um, is it inappropriate to call it like the shit show? Um, no. <laughs> that sounds about right. I mean, we just kind of do the best with what we have, with what we've got and where we are. Um, yeah. I, I think I call it like right now because our life has changed so much. I mean, every moment it's different. Every week to week is different. And so I think calling it the right now is, or the new normal would be really good. The new normal. Yeah, I like yes. both of those. Or the right, yeah. I would watch. You would watch? <laughs> it's certainly dramatic <laughs> enough. Oh my gosh. If it's not, if it's not, you know something going on with either of our careers you know it's something going on with our girls or you know the foster world or even you know our family because they cut you know our extended family and siblings they've got their own stuff going on too and yeah it would it would be an entertaining show that's for sure (laughs) well thanks again for coming on and sharing your story and being so open we really appreciate it um, and thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Floral Couch Conversations. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Floral Couch Conversations. And feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions or suggestions or just want to give us a shout out, floralcouchconversations at gmail.com. And if you're liking what you're hearing, tell everyone you've ever met and give us five stars. Thanks, thanks. everybody. Bye.